0: Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. on Balance I'm your host Dr. Rodberger. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Ali Vallo. He's a CEO at Education Alliance Finland and so many of you know him and recognize I think his face for those of you watching this discussion uh on LinkedIn because his his uh, alliance is so I think it's so well Followed and, and noted in the ed tech space outside of Finland uh, here in the US we pay great attention to what you're up to ollie um, let's talk we've been we've been having a discussion offline here. Uh, I want to talk about sort of the origins of the alliance and what was the initial objective in developing that, and at what point did certification and that uh, as sort of an offering or a service come into play in your thinking uh, in building education in alliance Finland.
1: Ah uh, yeah well, I suppose it all all started with um, uh, well, we have four founders and two of us used to work as as teachers and and when working as as teachers, we had noticed that uh, there are so many different learning solutions out there, and it's really overwhelming for for teachers sometimes if you if you try to go to Google and try to find what are some good learning apps that you could use with your students. And it seems like there's there's just too many of those that you it's almost impossible to understand that what are some good ones that I would use with my students and and and, and also sort of understand that are are some of these applications that kind of applications that I should not be using with my students. Understanding the the quality aspects and the educational value is a, is a bit of a challenge for for teachers. So that that was what our experience in that in in trying to find edtech tools as teachers. And then eventually, uh, we both ended up working in an edtech company's uh, developing learning solutions. And I was working in a Finnish startup developing a music learning solution. And uh, then when I was working on the other side of the desk, I realized that, okay, it's not that easy. We have a great tool, but how do I communicate the educational value uh, to the to the teachers. Uh, many times when I was presenting the music learning platform in education fairs or events, I, I talked with the teachers. I gave them a demo, and after the demo, they 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 said that okay, looks nice, looks like a, like a fun music activity. But how do you prove that you actually learn something when when you compose songs with your with your tool? And I'm thinking that okay, it, it's a it's a valid fair question. But then again, if I were here to sell a music theory book, they would never ask me that, hey, it looks like a nice book. But how do you prove that somebody actually learns if they, if they read the book? So, um, I started thinking that if I compare our music learning solution against learning science principles, it would probably align uh, with those principles really well. You, you had the collaboration there. You had the creativity, the self-expression. Uh, the, the, even the visual, how it how it visualizes the music, that that helps you to understand the structure of music and an idea of a song and so on. So, uh, I started thinking that would there would it be possible to compare the design of a learning solution against learning science principles, and draw a conclusion that if the solution aligns with learning science principles right kind of use of that solution would lead to positive learning outcomes and that was the sort of the original idea that we we had that we wanted to we, we wanted to 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 solve or or figure out and then having experienced that as a teacher hard to find solutions we kind of thought that okay if we start doing these type of evaluations how well solutions align with learning science principles maybe we could provide some sort of a Uh, accreditation for the evaluated solutions, Uh, and this kind of stamp of approval would help teachers eventually to to recognize what are some of the high-quality solutions that have been evaluated.
0: So, Ali, I think one of the challenges in evaluation is that over time we start to think about Sort of the mechanisms that are at play. I'll give you a real world example. So last night I was at at my son's elementary school and evaluating the young people and their skills in basketball because I'm going to be a coach. And the fathers and, and the mothers and fathers that were you know, with me as coaches were having a discussion about sort of a point system and rating what they were seeing from a skill set. And the parents were then saying when we were done that they had, mistake, had made mistakes in the beginning because they were overinflating what they were seeing and they were getting a little bit more, you know, stringent in their evaluation as it went through the evening. And so it makes me think about what we're talking about in that there are thousands and thousands of startups in the ed tech space across the world. And at some point, when do we lower, when do we raise the bar so that we get even I guess a higher quality of offering product and services and how do, you, how do you audit as a group your own evaluation process to maintain that level of credibility and, and to keep the standards high for those that are, that are innovating and they're looking for that feedback
1: yeah it's a it's a valid question and and um this was one of the key learnings uh in the beginning when we started thinking that okay what would be the right kind of criteria how is the criteria for for an edtech solution how do we develop that and of course when when conducting the evaluation it's important that you have the feedback in a form that is easy to understand for the product developers but also for for people in the education sector even for parents who don't necessarily have pedagogical expertise um And when it came to the development of the standard, a key thing that we realized quite soon was that, of course, the the, the pedagogy needs to be different if you are depending on what are the learning goals that you try to achieve with with the solution. So in in a simplified example, if you practice New foreign language words. You might want to do some drilling type of of activities, like very repetitive, very, this kind of, this kind of like a, like a quiz until you get it correct type of activity it can be very effective whereas if you try to build understanding of, uh, of climate change for example the same kind of drilling repetitive activity is probably not something that you, you'd want to do you you want to maybe get the demonstration visualize the concept and build your understanding maybe try to put that new understanding in practice through the use of that use of that or through a learning activity and because uh that we realized that the pedagogy needs to be different depending on the learning goals we cannot have this kind of one size fits for all type of criteria that is always always the same for all solutions and the way how we do that and sort of leave space for the criteria to develop and and evolve as well as as we are conducting more and more evaluations is that um, we, we have defined certain pedagogical elements that we look into. For example, whether the solution, uh, facilitates collaboration or, or not. Is it, is it based on individual learning experience or collaborative learning experience? And we use this, this pedagogical aspect as, or we form this type of contrary pair out of it so that we have a scale between individual and collaborative and then uh, when our evaluators are assessing the quality of the solution, they get asked questions about how does it facilitate collaboration, and then they then they reply, to, for example, statements such as does it facilitate face-to-face or does it allow face-to-face collaboration? Does it um, include online community? Does it require learners to share information with other learners? And this type of, this type of questions, and the evaluators they reply to each of these questions twice. First by saying, uh, first saying, how does the solution perform? Does it include online community or, or not? And then they reply to the same statement the second time saying, should it include online community or not? And the second answer they need to give from a perspective that what are the learning goals of the solution?
0: If because they, the may, not, they that, may not require that, right? Uh, Sorry, those learning goals may not require that face to face if if that's the point, right? So that so this flexible, um, if anything, what it sounds like, Ollie, it it does mirror the innovative the innovation process in general, right? To be iterative, to understand the different audiences that might be and the consumers of your product, as opposed to maybe traditional methods, which say this is our metric, this is our rubric, and if you don't fit into it, then you're not going to get a certification.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That that kind of flexibility based on the learning goals needs to be there, and and uh, yeah, of course. Then then after after we, we we sort of came to a conclusion that flexibility is needed, and and we always start each evaluation by first defining what are the learning goals of the solution, and only after that we are capable of of evaluating the, the pedagogy. But then it's a question about. So, what are the most important pedagogical aspects that we want to look into? And I think that that part will evolve as a, over years, and it has evolved, and, and it, we will probably endlessly, endlessly evolve uh, when we do more and more more evaluations. At let's the talk- moment, there are four, four different parameters that we're looking
0: to. Four different that you're looking through. Uh, let's talk about some of the specifics. How many companies have gone through this certification process with you? And what's, the, is there a general, what's the, what's the rate of, of certification? I mean, how many are getting turned away? Just, and not, it's more about what can we learn from those numbers? Um, when we think about sort of the landscape, you know, you know, we're talking about, you know, anybody, we're at a time and place where anybody can develop a solution across the world and have that solution in a classroom that it does not reside in the same country of, of origin of, of that very technology. So help help me understand how many have gone through and what have you noticed along the way in those that I guess have not been certified at the level um, that you're looking for through the Alliance?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I, I just uh, checked the uh, number of evaluated solutions from the evaluation software. There's now 362 evaluations. That have been, have been conducted with our, with our tool or on, on our platform. Uh, we have now, I think around 180 solutions, uh, certified, maybe a bit less. There's always a few solutions sort of in, in line waiting for the client to fill out the client form before the certification is, is uh, published on our website. Uh, it's a bit less than 200 at the moment. So that, so the ratio is, is above 50%. I, I think, um, However, the ratio, how many get certified nowadays is much higher than what it used to be in the beginning. Uh, I think that the main reasons why earlier companies didn't get the certificate as often as they do at the moment is that, uh, well, first of all, we, we, we worked more with earlier stage companies in the beginning. Uh, so that that was one thing when, when you work with companies who are in, a, in an incubator program or accelerator program that maybe just launched the first version of the solution. It, it, it is more likely that it doesn't get certified than if you if you assess a solution that has been out there for, for a couple of years already. So that's one thing. But also, besides that, I'd like to say that, the, that in general, what we have seen now during the, the four or five years that we've been doing this, the overall quality of EdTech solutions and the competency of EdTech teams, I, from my perspective, I would say that it's on a completely another level than what it used to be only a few years ago.
0: What what are some of the areas that you're seeing that improvement in is it the questions that they're asking, in essence, they can get ahead of the evaluation in that regard. I mean, I think even back 10 years, I, I was in meetings with ed tech companies that, I mean, it was as if they hadn't even been in a classroom before, right? They had great intentions, but from a development perspective, there was really little awareness and integration of the experience of the relationship between the teacher and the learner, and having multiple learners and schedules and time in the context of the school itself into their product. And it feels like maybe you're seeing this, that there is a greater awareness and there's been inclusion of teachers into the development of these products. And it feels like they're asking questions, better questions earlier on in their development. Are you seeing that?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I remember maybe, maybe four years ago, we were hosting this uh, workshop in, in one accelerator program for the, for the accelerated companies. And we began the workshop by, by talking about learning goals, learning objectives and, and how to, how to think about those when designing a learning solution or, or designing new content in your solution. And we talked about curriculum alignment and, and pretty much every company joining the workshop were like, What what is what are you talking about? (laughs) What what curriculum and what curriculum alignment? And nowadays, if you if you go to an ed tech conference conference and you can go to any stand and you can you can ask that okay, what what are the some of the curriculums that you align with? And everybody has their answer ready. So so definitely a a big change has happened.
0: You you recently put out on your website um you had an article, you were looking at what makes a great founding team at EdTech. Do you mind sharing just some of the reflections and some of the information? Because I think that would be very valuable as there are so many, you know, recently I was a part of StartEd's um, EdTech Week as a, as a shark for their Shark Tank. And, and I was honored to be able to, you know, re- be on the receiving end of these pitches from 10 different startups from around the world. And it was really interesting to see the different types of backgrounds of the founders and their desire to Basically, play in the edtech sandbox, and I'm wondering what you were seeing based on on your information with the alliance.
1: Yeah, it, it was really interesting to to go through the the unicorns and the and the founding teams of the of the edtech unicorns. Um, we had this kind of hypothesis in the beginning. That, that there would be people with, uh, with subject matter expertise or pedagogical expertise and, and, and maybe, maybe in, in each or, or almost every at the unicorn would have uh, at least one founder with education background. And this turned out to be not, not true. Uh, there were very, well, not very few people with, edu- with experience in, in teaching or, or education. I think out of, I think there were 64 founders. Of, of these 31, uh, unicorns. And I think 14 of those founders had experience, uh, in, in teaching. There were a couple, couple companies like New from the States, for example, that was founded by a former music teacher. Then another guild education. I, I think they're also from the US. They were both teachers. They had both, um, um, also, also, um, uh, teaching, teaching experience and also graduated as, as teachers. Um, most typically, uh, the founders were young male, at least one or if not even all three or four, uh, programmers. And, uh, after, after degree in, in engineering or, or programming, the most popular one was, uh, degree in finance or, or business degree. So, so it's, it, it seemed like almost all of those companies had, uh, started by, Creating a prototype by themselves, having at least one programmer in the team, in the founding team, and then being able to, to to test the concept with the prototype, and then then if the concept had worked, and obviously it had worked when these companies are nowadays more than valued over a billion USD. But uh, but yeah, programmers seem to be the most crucial crucial type of of a, of a founder. Uh, it doesn't give the most realistic picture of the whole edtech field because these are unicorn companies, and out of these companies, uh, 31 companies. I think there were maybe three or four companies operating in the, the K through 12 sector. So the vast majority of these companies were for higher education, corporate training. Uh, probably the sales cycles in in those areas or in those those industries. Uh, Target segments are much shorter, so the valuation of the company and the business of the company has has grown more rapidly. Um, but but yeah, so that that definitely affects. Uh, maybe if we'd look at the highest valued companies who operate in K through 12 sector, I, I would assume more teachers.
0: Uh, yeah, be- I think that that would be that would be a guess that I would have as well. Let's talk about I would imagine that you have conversations with those that participate with the alliance, the founders, um, and, and obviously these events that you hold and have held, uh, you know, pre COVID for sure, and then and probably more virtual over the last 18 months. But take me sort of behind the scenes. In your estimation, what are the what are the bl- if we're talking about the elements or the areas where we're we're seeing growth and strength in founders and founding teams, what are what are some blind spots when it comes to you know, after they've created a really interesting product, they've assembled a really interesting and compelling team and probably narrative, are they savvy enough in penetrating a given market in understanding the mechanisms that are at play that either are pushing or pulling them? from success, what are you sort of hearing or taking away? What is sort of the sentimentality of these conversations that would indicate to you that maybe this isn't a blind spot or these are blind spots that need more refinement for the sector?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, well that's a, it, it's a good question. What, what I have recently seen and, and discussed with, with EdTech founders is the, the sort of the, uh, how long does it take Until you start making revenue in the, in the school sector or or at least significant revenue. And I, I think I, I still see it, it, it's quite common with earlier stage companies that they have just uh, published the first version of their solution and they think that, okay, I I will, the the company will, will start making revenue like the next week and, and then, then by the end of the year we, we're, we have a good solid business in the uh, selling the products to schools uh whereas the reality in very many cases is that um, if you if you create the product you 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 uh show it to teachers the teacher says that hey i i love this this is exactly what i need and then it takes about 2 years before the teacher can actually start using and paying for the for the solution and and this whole time as a as an entrepreneur or or when running an it the company you need to be able to survive that time and and those long sales cycles in education sector is definitely something that that epic companies need, sort of need to understand and be prepared for, uh, not to not to run out of runway, but when 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 they haven't still yet made it. Um, so that's that's one thing. And another thing is definitely that when you publish the solution, regardless of how genius designer you are, for sure. Uh, during the first few years, when you're starting to get more and more users and you're starting to understand their behavior using your solution, getting feedback from them, understanding better their needs, the solution will change quite, quite radically for sure. And having that that sort of runway in order to get the feedback from the users, modify your solution to meet the needs of your users, Uh, make it easier and easier to use based on, on, on your understanding how they are using your solution. What are the core mechanics that they need? And then of course doing that, being able to build the business, tweak the business model, uh, make, make, make sure that it's, 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 uh, it's done in a, the business model and the, and the solution is done in a way that schools can actually can buy it and, and can start using it and, and will get the necessary support in using it. And get all those learnings, it, it does take time. And it, the companies need to be prepared to, to, to have, that, have that time to build the business.
0: But let's talk about being an entrepreneur. And, and, and I would say that you're an entrepreneur, obviously, building Education Alliance Finland and being in the ecosystem that you are. You know, one thing that I've noticed recently in some conversations is this notion of gut instinct, right and and the role that it plays in the development of a company and sort of the gusto and and the role of our ego that we need in times when we doubt ourselves others doubt us um but we have to keep moving forward but it does feel like in the maturation of a company and an entrepreneur we have to understand the relationship to our instincts and at some point generate or create a different relationship with that that sort of gut that we have, because we have teams, we have data now, we have certifications, so that we can lean into others and trust the process. And and I find that sometimes that can be the that actually can be what what breaks it in a negative way for a founder because they struggle to understand that and they actually tighten the screws, they micromanage, they sort of lose grip on the sensibilities of the market, and the lessons from those that have been there ahead of them. How do you interpret that, and do you find that that's been an experience that you've had, the relationship with what your instincts have been, and then as things grow, how you need to engage or not on your gut?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think that this is a this is a skill that you need to build over time as a as an entrepreneur. Maybe some people have a, a little bit little bit, or adopt that skill a little bit faster than than others, but but they, everybody needs to learn that. And and the main learning is probably to to find the right balance and find the right mindset. When to trust yourself and your instinct and your your gut when it comes to, for example, what kind of features our, our solution needs to have. And there are great stories, like if you if you look at how Steve Jobs has has worked, sort of sort of not trusting on on people's opinions but trying to innovate something completely new that nobody would even. No to, to ask for if, if he would ask that what kind of solutions or products you'd like to buy. They say something very conventional or traditional and conservative and he wants to build something completely different that it's even hard to imagine. Uh, so being bold, being bold and being brave to, to sort of trust on your gut and your instinct as, as well is, is one important ability I think that every entrepreneur needs to have. Uh, and, and also, when you discuss with the team and you're, if you're the entrepreneur, if you're the founder and you have the vision how the product needs to be and you have your team members saying that, Hey, maybe this would be a good feature. Maybe this would be a good feature. And I don't think that this would be a good thing to provide for our users. Sometimes you need to. Need to be very strict with your with your vision and loyal to your own vision. That no, I know that this is what how it needs to work, and let's just build it that that way. Uh, So, so trusting your instinct, but then again, of course, you need to trust on the on the users. And and there's a wise saying uh, regarding this that never trust what your users uh, say; only trust what they do. And if you're able to able to track how they are actually using, what are the key features that they're using in your solution, based on their behavior with your solution, what seems to be the most the key things that that they would even pay for, trusting that rather than going and asking them the hey what what do you think what are the the most important features and they might name something completely different than when you look at their their behavior.
0: I love that saying. It's it's really trusting what they do in that regard and it and the way that I would translate what I'm hearing from you is it's that sense of of comfort in your own skin. Right? We might see that as people get, you know, get older and they say I just feel more comfortable with my opinion or my place, my role. And and we can see that probably in building businesses. Let's close with this, Ali. You had a a post on LinkedIn that that got some traction and I found it very interesting. You were looking at, you know, and you made this you made this case around, you know, these companies in Japan that have been around for decades. <laughs> That's being very conservative. They've been around for a very, very long time and the focus on quality. And yet we've been talking about entrepreneurs. We've been talking about an ecosystem with thousands of competitors, right, and and runways that may or may not be as long as we would like them to be as entrepreneurs to get our ideas off the proverbial ground. And yet there's this element of patience, and trust and commitment to the quality of the product. Uh, can you speak to that as we as we close this conversation? Because I think it's important for entrepreneurs to to think about and maybe sort of sit in and be comfortable with that notion, even with all of the noise that is swirling around them.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is this is something I was listening to a podcast about Japanese companies and how in Japan they appreciate if the company is really really old old one. And I learned that there are a few companies, I think about 20 companies in Japan that are more than 1,000 years old. And some of these companies have belonged to the same family, those family businesses. And I started thinking that, think about the wisdom that you can build over time if your company operates for 500 years and generation after generation, you get new learnings, how to build our, how to improve our product, how good it will be after 500 years. Um, and and uh so that 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 was an idea that really fascinated me and then i heard that the that the founder of uh softbank the big investment company from from japan the founder of softbank or the or the ceo of softbank he operates with 300 years plan So he doesn't think about his investment or their investments. What like can we make profit in the next five years or next ten years or or even next twenty years? But he thinks if this is a smart investment, if we if we look at this from uh, with the scale of three hundred years, and it's it's a fascinating idea, and I I think it's something that if you operate in the education sector, it's not the it's not the short term quick win area. You you look at the educational publishers, they are all about 100 200 year old companies, and they are making good profit now. And this is this is how I think it would be beneficial, oh, at least as a, as another additional perspective. Think it from that perspective
0: yeah it's um 300 year plan maybe you should add that into the certification and just see the responses that you get right it it's sort of the question that i like to ask entrepreneurs just say well what is your what is your exit plan because so many of them there there's a bit of a shock because they have no desire to exit but i think it actually informs the strategies that you deploy and the way in which you might use capital uh because you do have to lean into others for the support whether that is from a a, a, a you know a a contribution of mind or or finances or a part of the team, the story, right? And so all of these different narratives come into play. And when you ask somebody, what is your exit plan? Uh, I do think it helps to hone in. And that's the beauty of saying, well, what about a 300-year plan, right? (laughs) That to me is legacy building, right? What legacy do we want to leave? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely.
0: Well, it's going to be fascinating to continue to watch Education Alliance Finland. I, you know, you, it's been a treat. I've followed you for a long time. You are very thoughtful as an organization and I think as a leader in the conversations that you're having. We need it here in the U.S. We look to Finland for, I think, guidance uh, from afar in trends and ways in which to apply learnings uh, in the classroom through technology um, and just even human capital in that regard. So, so it is a great service that you are providing the EdTech ecosystem, which obviously blends beyond or goes far beyond just ed tech. So we want to thank Ali Vallo, the CEO and co-founder of Education Alliance Finland. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.